Welcome once again to Centuries and Saints. I am Scott Matson, your host for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in for this episode here, where we will be replaying a sermon that I preached at Applegate Christian Fellowship in Southern Oregon a couple years ago, dealing with Galatians chapter 3. I'm excited for you guys to hear this teaching, and I pray that it's a blessing to you. Uh, you all can take a seat if you want, or you can stand if you want to. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. It's cool with me. Um, <clears throat> well, like I said, my name is Scott, and uh, I have the privilege of uh, working here at the church. Um, but no, it's, it's a great uh, privilege to, to get to be here, and, and uh, it's, I know a lot of you. I don't know some of you, but uh, it's, it's nice to meet all of you guys and get to know you. So uh, Pete asked me to take Galatians 3 and 4, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm excited about that. Uh, Galatians has always been one of my favorite books. Uh, just the incredible grace of God that we see in Galatians, that uh, not only do we not earn God's love and God's favor and our salvation, but God doesn't even want us to try. Uh, he's fulfilled all the requirements of the law on our behalf in Christ, and we just get to reap the benefits of that. And then that, what that does, as you guys know, as we walk with the Lord, that then results in holy living, that results in sanctification, uh, as we've talked about. So the good works that we do are not done to earn the favor and the blessing of God, but rather they're a response to the justification that we've been given uh, in Christ. And so we're going to be digging into that, uh, Galatians 3 and 4. Don, am I talking too loud? Is it feeding back? I can't hear you. I guess not then. We're good? Okay. Whatever sounds good. I just want to make sure... Okay. Oh, thank you. Well, I won't sing for you, so we'll just, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so real quick, just uh, some intro stuff here to get us into Galatians 3 and 4. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as you guys know, obviously the author of Galatians. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in Scripture that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee trained at the feet of the very famous and brilliant Rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, some scholars have said that Paul, with his training that he received, uh, had what is roughly the equivalent in our day of two PhDs. So Paul was a brilliant, brilliant man, a brilliant theologian, a very devout Jew. Uh, we know that Paul says, I believe it's in Acts, it escapes me right now, he says, concerning the righteousness in the law, blameless, you know, except for covetousness. That was the one that really tripped him up. And so Paul lived a very holy life uh, before he came to know Jesus. And then you guys, of course, know the story. Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus on the way to persecute Christians and imprison Christians. And Jesus meets him and blinds him, knocks him to the ground and says, okay, now you're mine. So it kind of works that way. Exactly. I, I heard a pastor once kind of jokingly say, whatever your thoughts on the whole predestination election thing, Paul was elect. If Jesus comes to you and basically beats you up and says, you're mine, you're elect. So <laughs> that was Paul's testimony. Uh, none of us probably have that quite of a dramatic testimony. But uh, anyways, Paul, as he's writing Galatians, there's this group that are kind of commonly called the Judaizers. And they're going around uh, and they're saying, okay, great. You've received Christ. You've believed on him for salvation. It's a good start. But... 
now it's time to sharpen the knives, drop your drawers, and, you know, yeah, circumcision. Uh, and so Paul is writing to them for a couple of reasons. He's defending his apostolic authority because these Judaizers are calling that into question. And then he's rebuking them, as you guys know, because they've turned away from Christ. They're turning away from the simple gospel of justification by faith. And they're attempting to add to their righteousness through keeping the law. And so Paul writes, because these believers in, in these churches in Galatia are beginning to believe, uh, as Paul calls it, a different gospel, which really is no other gospel. But they're beginning to fall prey to this, and they're beginning to uh, be sucked in to believing this perversion of the gospel. And what this is doing is this is not only causing them to turn away from Christ, but it's also causing them to uh, turn away from Paul and dissension in the church. And those things, as you know, are never fruits of the Spirit. Because fruits of the Spirit, the main one is love. And then it's characterized by joy, peace, patience, all of that. Okay, so in a commentary I read, uh, the author said this. He said, Paul's purpose in writing was to persuade the Galatians that no Gentile needs to accept circumcision in order to be justified and to belong to God's covenant people. The truth of the gospel is that justification and entrance into communion with the people of God comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's Paul's purpose in writing. And so as we saw last night, uh, as Pete mentioned, Paul gives them a greeting, but then rather than go into their wishing them well and wishing for their health and all these things, he just kind of right away launches into, what are you guys doing? What is going on here? I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from Christ. And that was unusual for Paul's letters. Uh, but I think what that does is that helps sort of set the tone for Galatians. That's how serious this is for Paul. He skips the whole, all the niceties and he just gets right to it. And we'll see later today in Galatians 6, at the end of the book, that sort of Paul's normal way that he closes his letters, his final farewells and all of that, he leaves that out as well. So it's like he just says, hello, I love you, and then let's get into this because you guys are in a very bad place. And as we'll see in chapter 4, I believe Paul does that because he so deeply loves these people. We see in chapter 4 his pastor's heart coming out where he is just, I believe, broken for these people. Uh, he's, he's, I'm not a parent, but for those of you here that are parents, you know, when you're, because I had this happen to me when I was a kid, you know, when you're really frustrated with your children and you're just like that because you love them so much and you see the way that they're going wrong, you know, and so that's, it's a good anger. It's sort of a righteous frustration or anger, if you will. Okay, so all of that, what I want to do is I want to start off by reading uh, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation is not a hard book to find. So what I'm going to do, you're welcome to turn there, you don't have to. I'm just going to read Revelation chapter 4, it's 11 verses, and then a few verses from Revelation 5. Uh, again, just to sort of set the tone here. And so, uh, Revelation 4, the Apostle John, he says, After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. 
And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So that's Revelation 4. And then Revelation 5, verses 11 through 14, John says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under this earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay. So, those words there in Revelation 4 and a little bit of chapter 5. The reason I wanted to read those is because I wanted to set the tone here for, again, the importance of what's happening uh, in the book of Galatians and Paul's exhortation to these people. Uh, As we just read, that was the heavenly throne room. And we see the elders, the millions upon millions of angels, the four living creatures, they're all around the throne of God in his unveiled presence. And what are they doing? They're falling on their faces and they're crying out, holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty. And so for me personally, one of the the biggest blessings in my walk in the last year or so has been studying and digging into uh, trying more to understand the holiness of God. And it's a little bit scary, because if you think about this, this is God, the triune God, this eternal being who is omnipotent, who knows everything, omnipresent. There's no part of our lives, good or bad, that's hidden from him. And that's, at least in me, that the, the first reaction that generates in me, honestly, is, wow, that's scary. Because I know myself, and I, I know the issues I have and the, the sins, you know, with which I struggle. And so I wanted to read that because when we understand the holiness of God and we set it in that context, it really brings Galatians to that place of of primacy because Paul says, 
Don't turn away from Christ. Someday you will stand before God at judgment. Your only hope is Christ. The only Savior, the only way to be to stand before this God and to not be judged, but to be received joyfully as his sons and daughters, is to be robed in the righteousness of Christ, the gospel, which the Galatians had believed. But now they're turning away from that. And so for me, I wanted to read that for you guys because, uh, again, for me, that helps me really just keep the gospel there uh, in its primary place where all of us someday will stand before God. And every one of us in this room, I'm assuming, we're all born again, all believers in Christ, uh, we can rejoice and have hope in that day because it's his will, the Father's good pleasure to present us before himself on the day of judgment, holy, blameless, as his sons and daughters hidden in Christ. And so that brings us now to Galatians chapter 3. So if you're not there already, you can turn there. And uh, we're just going to work our way through this uh, verse by verse. So, all right, Galatians chapter 3. So what I did in my notes here, uh, because I I kind of study this way, I broke things up uh, into an outline for myself. So don't worry, I'm not going to just read my outline to you guys. That would be a little bit boring. Um, But uh, we're just going to go through this because, man, what an amazing, amazing book this is. So I want to start out verse 1, Galatians 3. Paul says to them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, this to me is interesting because Paul here is, I think what Paul's doing here, he's looking at these people. uh, And again, remember, this is Galatia, the province there in in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, under the Roman Empire. These people would have been familiar with uh, crucifixion. You know, we know from history, uh, the Romans crucified many people. And so these people would have understood what crucifixion was, how brutal it was. If, if you ever saw the Passion of the Christ, uh, we got a taste of it, you know, in that movie. And so this is something uh, that these people would have understood. They would have been familiar with this. And Paul says, what are you doing? Look, this is what, you know what crucifixion is. That's what Jesus went through for you to free you from uh, the curse of the law and to redeem you out from the law and to bring you to the Father. And he had to go through all of this, the scourging, the crucifixion, and you're turning away from him? What are you doing? As he says, who has bewitched you, deceived you? It's amazing. Paul is, again, like I said, I believe like a parent. He's in a good way, frustrated with his children because they're turning away uh, from their simple faith in Christ. And again, they're being uh, deceived and and held captive by this group going around trying to add works of the law to faith in Christ uh, for salvation and justification. And so it's interesting to me that Paul does that. And then he goes on, he says, this is, starting in verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you are, now, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
And so Paul here is asking them a rhetorical question. It's like, man, you guys, you've been given the Holy Spirit. God has done miracles among you. Did he do all that because you kept the law? Because you're so righteous and holy in yourselves? Or did he do that by his grace? Simply through faith. Paul's asking them a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, being, it's just by, by faith, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul reminds them here that you've been justified by faith. So why are you, you began in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit drew you to Christ and, and you had saving faith and God regenerated you. Why now are you turning away from that and trying to add to that with your own works of righteousness. What are you guys doing? What's the point of this? And then Paul mentions that they had suffered so many things. Now, this could be a, a reference to the persecution uh, that was taking place there in, in that time uh, from both the, the pagan Gentile cultures and Jewish persecution as well uh, against some of the early church. And so Paul's reminding them of all of these things, and he's saying, look, you guys, you trusted in Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been justified, reconciled to God by faith in Christ, why are you trying to add to that now by your own works? You know, I know for myself personally, uh, this is my own little commentary here. That's something that honestly I've always struggled with in my walk. I've always struggled with this, I don't want to say the ability, but I'll, I guess for lack of a better term, the ability to simply just rest in Christ. Uh, Hebrews 4 the author of Hebrews talks about how there was a, a rest remaining for the people of God. And he's talking about just resting in the finished work that Christ has accomplished for us. And I personally, I don't know about you guys, but I am really, really bad at that. I'm terrible. My tendency is definitely uh, to go the Galatian way and to, uh, to try and give the Lord reasons to love me or reasons to bless me uh, beyond just what Christ has done for me. You know, that, that's my tendency. And, and so if you're anything like me, uh, a retreat like this is a real blessing because it just helps get us back to that simple reminder, you know, of the gospel. Okay, and it's, uh, we're going to move on here, verses 6 through 9. So I'm going to read those, and, and then I want to talk some more about that because this is also really interesting to me. Uh, Paul writes, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore... Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's a reference to Genesis 12. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, I like what Paul does here. Because remember, with the Judaizers, they're coming around. And they're trying to mix uh, Jewish law-keeping and custom with faith in Christ for salvation. And so Paul, as I mentioned earlier, Paul here being the brilliant man that he was, the brilliant theologian, the, the credentialed rabbi that he was, I think Paul here is kind of saying, okay, you guys want to believe these guys? I can play that game as well. Paul goes right back to Genesis, the beginning of the Torah, and appeals to Father Abraham. Paul makes his case and proves his point that the gospel and justification comes to all of us by faith in Christ. And Paul does that by appealing to Abraham. 
So I think what he's doing here is he's kind of saying, I'm just going to beat them at their own game. They're going to try and deceive you. Well, let's go. And I think that's what Paul's doing, and I love that. I love that Paul does that because, uh, man, it's just such a brilliant thing to do. And we know that Paul was inspired by the Spirit as he's writing this. And so he goes back to Genesis 12, to the beginning of the Torah, and he begins to prove his point that the, the Judaizers are preaching a perversion of the gospel and that the Galatians, as much as he loves them, are foolish for being led astray, for being deceived by it. Now, it's interesting in Acts chapter 15, uh, if you guys want to turn there, Acts 15, uh, the Jerusalem Council. This is where uh, the apostles, James, Peter, and Paul, they're there uh, meeting in Jerusalem and they're talking about Uh, what they need to tell the Gentile believers. Okay, and so they're they're having this meeting, and beginning in verse 7, Peter stands up, and Peter says this. He says, Brethren, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And then this is what really struck me, verse 11. He says, but we believe that we are saved. And Peter is Jewish. Paul, James, these are all Jewish Christians. Peter says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And the they to whom he's referring there are the Gentiles. Now, I find that interesting. Peter doesn't say that, yeah, the Gentiles will be saved like we will. Peter says, no, we, the Jewish people, we will be saved the same way that the Gentiles are. It's by faith in Christ. And so that's the Apostolic Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And Paul here again, part of that council, and Paul's saying it's Jesus. And he appeals to Abraham. And so Paul makes this argument in, Gen- in pardon me, not Genesis, Galatians chapter 3. He makes this argument going back to Torah that, guys, it's by faith alone. It's not by the works of the law. Okay? And so Paul in verse 7, as we saw, he says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So the Judaizers are talking to the Galatian believers, and they're trying to say, Okay, Christ is a good start, but you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law according to Moses. That's how you're justified. That's how you're really in with God. And Paul says, no. He says, be sure. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, that would have been a big insult to the Judaizers. You know, we saw Jesus in in the Gospels, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, you know, constantly indicting the Pharisees uh, for being false teachers and wolves, and he would call them all kinds of these harsh names, you know, telling them that they're not really truly you know, the sons of Abraham. He says, you know, if God was your father, you would glorify me. And then Jesus tells them that their father, he tells the Pharisees uh, that their father was the devil. 
So that would probably not have gone over very well. And so <laughs> if you tell somebody that, that's typically not a, uh, a compliment. You know? <laughs> so um, Paul here, in a sense, is kind of doing the same thing. It's like, no, it's those who are of faith, not the works of the law, but of faith, who are really the sons of Abraham. Okay, and then again in verse 8, Paul says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, again, Genesis 12, 3, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, it's interesting to me, and this is a, a really amazing passage here in Galatians where Paul talks about the promises that are given to Abraham were promises God made to him of what would eventually be the new covenant of, of the coming of Christ and the gospel. Because we know that Abraham is the father of faith of all those who believe, both Jew and Gentile, as Paul says in Scripture. So uh, verse 10, Paul says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for, and Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Quoting the Old Testament again. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Man, what a thick section of scripture this is. I, that's why I love the book of Galatians. It's so amazing. Uh, so back to verse 10, as we read when Paul says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So we're not speaking badly of the law. The law is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's perfect. The problem, if I can make this really simple, is that we are not. Exactly. The law is wonderful. We aren't. We are sinners. As the scripture says, we are consigned under sin, uh, children of disobedience by nature. And so the law being as good as it is, it's not anything that can impart life to us because none of us can keep it. We can try. I've, I've had friends in the past who, you know, told me that, you know, they would do certain things like you know, they would go to church on a certain day because that was keeping the Sabbath. You know, things like that. And it's like, okay, that's fine. You know, whatever, do your thing. But I always wonder with things like that, why are you, are you doing it for what purpose? To try and please God? To try and earn more favor with God? Uh, I was talking to one of my roommates uh, the other day, actually, one of Tony and Debbie's sons. Tony and Debbie are here at the retreat. Nice people, if you haven't gotten to know them yet. Um, and we were talking the other day, and uh, one of their sons, who, like I said, is, is my roommate, uh, we were talking, and he was telling me that there's some guys that he knows that have kind of gotten into, it has different names, and I don't really know the proper name, but basically it's kind of like, it's called like the Hebrew Roots Movement. 
And what it is, is, is there's a lot of Christians who are seeking to keep the law in a sense, abide by the dietary restrictions, uh, go to church on a certain day, do these different things. And, you know, Josh, their son and I, we were talking about this, and the claim is made, well, we're not doing it uh, to try and be more holy. That's not the purpose we're doing it. It's like, well, then why are you doing it? You know, and again, my point in saying all that and sharing that little tidbit with you guys is simply to say that that tendency is always alive in the human heart. Even for those of us that are born again, like I said a few minutes ago, that's my big temptation always is to drift towards legalism. Like, Lord, I know, okay, I get it, grace, I'm saved. Just give me the checklist. <laughs> Lord, I did my quiet time, I prayed the Lord's Prayer, I read three chapters of my Bible, and I took communion. Good, right? Yeah? Two thumbs up, Lord? And maybe at lunch, I'll like pray for five extra minutes and read a chapter in Psalms, and then before I go to bed, I'll read Spurgeon or something, and then, cool. I'm good, you know? That's what I want. I want the checklist. Uh, that's just, I don't know. Most of you, I don't know if you guys are like me, but um, yeah, Kurt, love you, brother. Honest. Good man right there. <laughs> that's right. Um, and so it's, it's funny because, uh, my goodness, you know, I, Pastor John has, has shared this analogy before. Let's, you know, if the requirement is, okay, if you want to go to heaven, you have to swim from San Francisco to Maui, you know. <laughs> so I jump in the water and I swim for 400 meters and then I drown because I'm not a good swimmer. You know, Pete jumps in after me. He makes it 600 meters. Kurt makes it 1,000. Yeah, dude. Kurt, Kurt's on it, man. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. And then Lee, Lee makes it a mile, 1,600 meters. Man, Lee, that's amazing. Who cares? You're still like 3,000 miles short, right? <laughs> we all drown. Okay, Lee, Lee breathed a little bit more than we did, you know, before he died, but... Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, who cares if you make it 400 meters or a mile? It doesn't matter. You're so far away. And, and so I just find it so interesting for myself and uh, for Kurt, who raised his hand, and for, I'm sure, all of us, I'm being kind of silly here, and for the Galatians. It's like, what are you guys doing? You began by the Spirit. God saved you by his grace. He justified you by just faith in Christ. I'm a, I'm a Protestant reformer guy, if you know who I am, I'm a church history guy. I get to teach church history. I love the Reformation. I love Luther and all those guys. And so I'm a justification by faith alone guy, big time. You know, that's, I love that. And so, you know, Paul's like, what are you guys doing? You've been justified. You've been put into right relationship with God, brought into the covenant family of God, which is now by simple faith in Christ. It's the new covenant. Why are you trying to go back to the old covenant? What are, you, what are you doing? This makes no sense to me, you foolish Galatians, as Paul said in verse 1. And later in this chapter, and then on into chapter 4, we're going to get into where Paul makes this parallel between all of this and sonship and inheritance uh, in ancient society in, in which Paul lived. And we'll get into it, and it's just amazing the things that he says. 
Uh, but again, the point here is if you want to be justified by the, the works of the law, you have to perform all things written in the law. You know, as you guys know that passage in the book of James where James says, you know, of course now I'm blanking, I can't remember it. He says, uh, you know, if whoever tries to keep the law is a debtor to the whole law. In other words, okay, you kept these four, but you missed the other 609. Or you kept this one, but you missed the other nine. Uh, again, you know, you, okay, Lee, you swam a mile. Good job. But you're still a long ways from Maui, you know. You didn't even come close. <laughs> and, uh, and so Paul's doing that here. That's a very belabored way of making this point here that, that Paul's doing. The law requires perfect, comprehensive obedience for salvation. And as we all know, there's only one who's ever done that. It was the one born without sin, the one who lived perfectly in thought, word, and deed without sin, in perfect submission to the Father. And, of course, that's our Savior. That's our Lord, Jesus. He's the only one who's done it. And so it's interesting, Paul says, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, again, the law is beautiful, but we aren't. Therefore, we are cursed because we are under the law. We are violators of the law, sold under sin. And so it's interesting because Paul here is saying, look, these Judaizers, they're trying to get you guys to think that they're the holy ones. They're the ones who are really, really righteous, the ones who are adding works of the law to faith. And Paul here is making the point is like, no, actually, they're cursed. They're the ones who are not trusting in Christ for their salvation. Or maybe they had and they were just getting way off track. You know, of course, I don't know every single one of these people. But the, the general point here is, look, these guys are trying to make you think they're the righteous ones. And if you follow them, you'll be the righteous ones as well. Paul says, no, not at all. We are under the curse of the law. Christ has redeemed us, bought us back bought us out from under the curse of the law and made us truly righteous. His righteousness has been imputed onto us and we stand before the Father hidden in Christ, perfectly righteous. So Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us and now that we are in him, we are counted as righteous and holy. Yeah, amen. It's beautiful. I love it. The gospel, like the food that we ate, you know, we don't have to see all the gory details of what our bodies do to the food that we eat. It's in us, you know, it's hidden in us. Thank the Lord, <laughs> you know, and so that's how we are in Christ, you know, with all of our sinfulness and disobedience, by faith, we are counted as righteous, just as Abraham believed God and God counted it to him, imputed it to him as righteousness, beautiful, beautiful thing that the Lord has done for us. And so really quickly, that brings us, I just wanted to point out, uh, I guess I already did, I pointed out that whole idea of substitution uh, and imputation, those little fancy terms which basically mean Christ died in our place. You know, we're the sinners, we're the ones who deserve uh, the wrath of God. And I remember in Revelation, we saw the throne room of heaven, God who Paul says in, I believe, 2 Timothy, dwells in unapproachable light. He is so infinitely holy, and his majesty is, is blinding and brilliant. Even those angels who never fell, they, they cover their eyes when they're in God's 
you know, just full unveiled presence because of how holy, how holy and how righteous he is. And so, my goodness, what good news that we get to stand before him hidden in Christ. You know, ah, it's amazing. Were it not for Christ, we would all be dead eternally. We would all be going to hell if it was not for Christ. So praise God. Man, I love that. That's why I love Galatians and I love reading Paul because he just makes the gospel so beautiful. And he explains it in a way that causes us to see how beautiful it is. I should say it that way. Uh, The gospel is beautiful in and of itself, of course. And so another thing that I want to point out here, and this is so great, uh, Jesus, as he lived, as he walked this earth and lived in perfect obedience to the Father, uh, this is something that really blew my mind personally, probably, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so. I I just came to kind of understand this more. I always had this thought that, okay, Jesus died for my sins, paid the price, he rose again, by his grace, I'm saved. You know, I've trusted in him, uh, I'm forgiven. And I always had this thought that what God does is he kind of just sets my dial back to zero. I'm, I'm righteous now. I, I'm, I'm forgiven of all my sins. Okay, now it's time to get to work. <laughs> read my Bible, pray the Lord's Prayer, read Spurgeon, you know, all those little checklists that I mentioned earlier. I always thought that's kind of how it works. But that's not how it works. Not only did Jesus pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future, He also perfectly fulfilled the law, giving us complete righteousness. And so, again, it's not just your sins are forgiven, congratulations. It's your sins are forgiven, and God the Father counts you and me as though we had perfectly fulfilled the law, because Jesus did that on our behalf. And so, I know. That's right. Debbie, getting Pentecostal in here. I love it. That's right. You can do it on the mountaintop. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Paul here, he's going through and he's making all of these points. And he's reminding, uh, again, the Galatians, you guys, you began in the spirit. You began by faith. What are you doing? Why? Why are you trying to improve on what Christ has done by your own meager, pathetic law keeping? Because we all fail. Every one of us. If you've ever tried to keep the law takes about four seconds, and you're like, oh, whoops, I just messed up. <laughs> you know, if nothing else, I'm proud of myself for, oh, that's a sin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. So uh, verse 15, let's keep reading. Uh, in this part of the chapter now, starting in verse 15, Paul begins to make his transition into speaking specifically of the covenants, the old and the new covenants. And he does sort of this compare and contrast. And what he does is he shows that the new covenant, the gospel, the gospel was always the plan from the beginning. That's the promise God made to Abraham 430 years before God gave the covenant at Sinai, the old covenant, uh, which Paul goes into here, and we're going to see that now. And so the new covenant has always been the plan. It's always been God's priority for his people. So uh, verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, 
which came 430 years later, speaking of later after Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, speaking of God's promise to Abraham, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Okay, and so Paul, really quickly here, I don't want to bore you with all these little details, but really quickly, Paul here, he says, look, the way that covenants work, covenants you guys know are different than contracts. Covenants are, I will do this, you will do this. And in ancient times, they would literally slice an animal in half or several animals, and they would walk through the the carcasses, the gory, fleshy, bloody carcasses, symbolically saying, may this happen to me if I don't fulfill my part of this covenant. And so Paul's saying, look, one, even a human covenant, you know, between me and Phil, if we make a covenant for some weird reason, which we probably won't, but if we did, you know, it's only a human covenant. It's just between me and Phil. We're both humans. But even that, when it's been ratified, nobody sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So Phil and I make a covenant, and we both have to keep our part even though it was just between two human beings. Okay, so that's what Paul's making here about, the point he's making about this covenant. Paul then says in verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is Christ. Verse 17, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So, again, Phil and I make a covenant, it stands, and we have to keep our part of it. How much more, then, when God makes a covenant, it cannot be nullified, it can't be added to, it stands forever. And Paul says here, 430 years before Moses and Mount Sinai at Exodus 20, Genesis 12, God is making these promises to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. And Paul says, to your seed, that is Christ. In other words, the, the promises that God is giving to Abraham are the promises of the gospel, the promises of the new covenant. It's an amazing thing. And Paul says, look, that was made, even though the law comes 430 years later, this still stands, which is the gospel, the new covenant. So this is the plan. This is God's priority for his people. So it's a glorious thing here. And again, Paul is hearkening back to Torah, to Abraham, to Moses, these fathers, the patriarchs, uh, Moses, the, the lawgiver, Abraham, the father of all of the Jewish nation. And Paul's hearkening back and using these men in these Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. It's about the gospel of Christ. So the Judaizers, these people that are coming in and doing this thing, trying to add you know, law to faith... You know, they're trying to say they're really the, the sons of Abraham. They're the faithful ones. Paul says no. Because to Abraham himself, God made the promise of the gospel. Genesis 12. It's an amazing, amazing thing uh, here in Galatians of what Paul's doing. And so in verse 18, when Paul says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And so Paul says, look, you guys, 
you want to, in a sense, you know, you want to be sons of Abraham. You want to add keeping the law to your faith to be more righteous, to be more holy, to add to what Christ has done, and to really be faithful sons of Abraham. The promise of the new covenant God made to Abraham wasn't made because Abraham kept the law. It was made simply on the basis of a promise. So even what you're trying to do is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. You know, God didn't give Abraham the promise based on law, but based on faith. So why are you guys trying to get more holy or get more blessings and favor from God by keeping the law when you've already been given faith in Christ and thus you've been made perfectly righteous? And so what Paul's doing here, and I love this, is he's just, he's making an argument that's winding its way through Galatians chapter 3, this logical argument here that he's making. Again, appealing to the father Abraham, tracing the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then going uh, into uh, Mount Sinai in Arabia there with Moses and the people of Israel, Exodus 20, 430 years later. And Paul is proving to them from the Old Testament that the plan is the gospel. It's always been the gospel, the new covenant. And so Paul would say to the Galatian church, you guys, this is what the scripture says. This is the plan. So don't go with these people who are coming in trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, as Paul said in Galatians 1, and trying to get you to turn from Christ to a different gospel. Say no to that. Don't go that way. Because there's nothing there. And so that's what Paul is doing here. And so we're going to read uh, verses 19 through 22, and then we're going to take a break. So stay with me here for just a couple more minutes, if you will. Uh, Verse 19, Paul says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Or as the King James says, God forbid. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who... Keep the law? Nope. Those who believe. Faith in Christ. That all-important theme coming again. Paul makes the point, why was the law given? Because human beings are sinful. So the law is showing us, wow, we are really, really bad. All of us. Again, Lee can swim four times farther than I can, but he still drowns before he makes it to Hawaii. It doesn't matter. I call out to Jesus, save me. That's right. And then Lee goes to heaven. That's right, yeah. <laughs> no, so, but yeah, exactly right. The law was given because of transgressions, because all of us, as Paul says in Romans, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 1, that famous chapter, Paul is pointing out that all the Gentiles are under the wrath of God because of sin. And then in Romans 2, he goes on to talk about how... Uh, The Jewish people as well are sinners. We're all sinners. And then Paul says in Romans 3, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks after God. The law was given for transgressions 
because we are all sinners. Jew, Gentile, Abraham, Moses, all the patriarchs, they were sinful men as well. Especially if you guys read Genesis, you know, especially Jacob, you know, yeah, you guys know this, the stories of Jacob. Yeah, one of the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet we know Jacob's sinfulness. And, and Paul says we're all sinners. The law was given for transgressions. And then Paul says, okay, look, the law was given by the agency of a mediator. That mediator was Moses. God gave the law to his people through Moses. Now, in verse 20, it's interesting. Paul says, now a mediator is not for one party only. What does that mean? Well, again, Phil and I, if we make a covenant, you know, the way that covenants worked in the past, there's a mediator. Maybe Sandy. She's a sweet lady. So, you know, uh, maybe Sandy's the mediator. Paul says here, but God is only one. And if God did the whole thing, as we saw in Genesis, uh, I believe it's, yeah, 15, the, the famous barbecue there with Abraham, where God goes through in the middle of the night, puts Abraham to sleep, and then God cooks all the meat. By the way, every time I hear Pastor John teach this, I just really want steak. So I always think of barbecue, and I'm like, oh, man. Anyway, I guess I'm getting hungry. It's 10 o'clock. All right. Um, so, second breakfast, yeah. It's like we're hobbits. Anyway, okay. Uh, where, what am I talking about? So Paul says, look, a mediator isn't just for one person, but God is only one, and he's the one that made this whole thing, the new covenant, the gospel. So what's the deal with that? Well, who's the mediator of the new covenant? Paul says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's who? Exactly, the man Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, so besides saying that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, Paul also here, I believe, is giving a very straightforward claim that Jesus is God. God's the one who made the covenant. God's only one. So what happened? Well, God made the covenant with himself. It's a covenant between the Father and the Son. And we are the beneficiaries, the recipients of the blessings of the covenant family of God in Christ. And so then Paul goes on to talk about how the law then, of course, uh, is not contrary to the promises of God because the new covenant was promised to Abraham that would give life to all who believe, faith in Christ, Paul says, well, then is the law contrary to that promise, which came to Moses later on? Paul says, again, God forbid. Of course, the law is not contrary to the promises because the law, Paul says, if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So Paul's saying the law is not contrary to the promise of the gospel because the law was never given for the purpose of making us right with God eternally. That wasn't the purpose of the law. So, why the law? Well, again, Paul said, because of transgressions, to show how sinful we are. Paul says again, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So, Paul confines everyone under sin says the law can't save you. It's Christ. So why are you guys turning away from Christ and trying to put yourselves back under the law? It makes no sense. It's foolish, as Paul accused them. I just say amen to that. You know, thank the Lord that you know, we cannot be justified by keeping the law. Because if that was the standard that we, you know, if that was actually how it happened, I'm not making it. I can tell you that for sure. 
you know, maybe Kurt, I don't know, but <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. Um, yeah, so that's, again, that's Paul's whole argument here that he's making is, look, God gave this promise to Abraham, the gospel, the new covenant. And the law came along not to invalidate that. The law was never meant to give you guys eternal life. So then why are you turning away from Christ and going back under the law? And man, I just I love what Paul's doing here, showing the Galatians how foolish it is to leave that simple faith in Christ to try and add to your righteousness. Besides being foolish, I believe it's also very insulting to God. You know, we had, uh, yesterday was Friday, uh, Pastor John came in and we did a, well, he did a phone call thing. Um, I was running the board in Capitol and there was this conversation about how, you know, how insulting is it to God as, as some of the cults claim, well, Jesus isn't really God. He's just created and God sent him to do the work of, of redemption. That's a real slap in the face to God because it says, oh, no, 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 God, you didn't save me. You just made someone else take the heat for me. And what a horrible thing that is to say, you know, and kind of in the same way here, I think it's a, it's a huge insult to the father you know, who sent his son, God himself comes and redeems his people from under the law. And they're like, yeah, thanks, that's, that's cool, but I'm going to go try and keep the Sabbath and eat, you know, not eat bacon because that'll really make me holy and righteous, right? <laughs> Two thumbs up, right, you know? Yeah, and so, man, that's why, again, for, for the Galatians and, again, of course, for us, uh, bringing it back home here in a sense, how essential it is that we just, Lord, it's just you. It's just Jesus. Uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm a fan of the Protestant Reformation. If you've ever listened to the church history things I do, I always talk about it. And one of the main things in the Protestant Reformation was this little Latin phrase, soli deo gloria. It just means to the glory of God alone. And I believe that's what Paul's doing here. And that's for all of us. All these things, we look at the goodness of the gospel. We can't keep the law. We can't receive eternal life through our good works. It's only because of Christ and what he's done for us. And that crushes our pride. And that really makes us say, this whole thing, the fact that I'm going to be in heaven, all of it, to the glory of God alone, I get no glory. I have nothing about which to boast. As Paul said of Abraham in Romans 4. So with that said, I'm going to pray real quick, and then let's take a... 10-minute break, stretch, bathroom food, whatever. Cool. <laughs> I need to stand up at least. I don't know about you guys, but more food, yeah. Second breakfast. All right. Um, Father, thank you so much uh, for your word for the book of Galatians. And thank you, Father, for sending your son, God, that you came for us, Lord, to redeem us, to save us, and Lord, to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Lord, without you, we would all be going to hell. Lord, but glory be to you, Jesus, for what you've done. God, so we worship you, we love you, and uh, man, thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Centuries and Saints. I pray that this teaching from Galatians chapter 3 and Paul's exposition of the law and the gospel and faith in Christ has been a blessing to you. Again, please rate the podcast and write us a review on the podcast store. We really appreciate it. 
And until next time, for Centuries and Saints, this is Scott Matson. God bless you. In glory's on display, that's right, and-